Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Gary Hilton was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1946. In his early 30s, he was married twice and divorced twice. He spent some of his early years in the Army. His criminal record started in 1972. And over the years, he was charged with theft, hit and run, drug possession, carrying a weapon without a license, solicitation, and arson. His April 1995 arrest photo shows a middle-aged man with receding short brown hair and a mustache and beard dappled with gray. Kind of reminds me of the Billy Bob Thornton's character in the Bad Santa movies. Over the years, Gary drifted from place to place, never staying long. He worked off and on 10 years selling siding. Gary had health problems and pulled his own teeth. He was often hungry and lived in his van. When he found life too hard, he would seek refuge in the forest. In 2005, Gary was driving a white Chevy Astra van when he abandoned on a Forest Service road in Georgia. That is an offense, and a U.S. Forest Service officer wrote him a ticket. And when Gary failed to pay the fine, a warrant was issued for his arrest. But Gary was long gone. On December 6th in western North Carolina, the temperature on average hovers around 50 degrees Fahrenheit in the afternoon. Rosanna Milani took a cab and did some shopping. Then the next day, while staying at the Ramada Inn, she called her father and mentioned to him that she had plans to go hiking that day. She was 26 with curly brown hair and a flower tattoo on her back. Although she was schizophrenic and bipolar, she liked her independence, but would rely on her father to send her money when needed. But when he didn't hear from her again by December 20th, he reported her missing to the local sheriff's office in Broward County and also with the Asheville Police Department. He deposited money into her bank account December 31st. It was never touched. In September 2007, Gary was acting irrationally and tried to extort $10,000 from his on-again, off-again boss at the siding company. John Tabor filed a complaint with the police. In North Carolina, John and Irene Bryant had been married 58 years. She retired as a vet to raise her children while John worked as a lawyer. They loved to hike and travel the world extensively following their passion. They lived in many places, but when nearing retirement in the early 1990s, they moved to Horseshoe to enjoy the hiking it offered. A month later, on October 21st, the couple both in their early 80s went for a hike in the Pink Beds area of Pisgah National Forest. There, they crossed paths with fellow hiker Gary and his dog. He eyed the fit elderly couple as easy victims. He beat Irene around the back and both sides of her head. She fought to stay alive. Her left hand and forearm were broken. Gary dragged her broken and battered body a short distance from their car and covered her in leaves. He then kidnapped John and coerced him into providing the PIN number to his bank card. The next day, he withdrew $300 out of their bank in Ducktown, Tennessee. Bank surveillance cameras showed Gary wearing John's yellow hooded jacket. He then drove the Nantahala forest and shot John in the head. 
The Atlanta Constitution reported that it was getting close to Halloween, and Irene and John's son Bob hadn't heard from his parents in a while, so he checked in with his sister Holly, but she wasn't concerned. She was used to them taking off on spur-of-the-moment trips. But, just in case, Bob popped over to the house, which looked fine, but then he smelled something, something bad, and discovered rotting garbage. That wasn't like his mom. She kept a tidy house. So John drove the back roads of Pisgah National Forest for two days looking for his parents on the routes he knew they'd like to take. On November 6, he spotted his parents' deserted Maroon Ford Escape parked near the Pink Beds Trail. A few days later, on November 9, Irene's body was found. John was still missing. Three weeks later, on Friday, November 30th, Cheryl Dunlop talked to her son, Michael. She had two sons who were grown and on their own. She'd been a nurse in Alabama for years and had just returned to Wakakala County in Florida where she grew up. She lived alone in a small, quaint house in Crawfordville. She had her little chihuahua buddy to keep her company. Court records indicated that the next morning she called her friend Keona Hill and they made plans for dinner that evening. Then she headed off to Leon Sinks, a forested area dotted with trails and plans to read a book. At 46 years old, she was a petite woman at only 5 foot 4 inches with brown hair and brown eyes. She was a cautious person by nature. At 1.30 p.m., she was spotted by a couple and they noticed she was carrying a book. Gary stalked her. He punctured her car tire, then offered to help, but instead, he kidnapped her. Her white Toyota Camry sat on the shoulder of the Crawfordville Highway, its tire flat. Later that day, a Florida Highway State Trooper ticketed her car. Cheryl did not meet Keona for dinner, nor did she attend church the next morning. And missing her at church, Tanya Lan went to Cheryl's home and noticed her car was missing, and then her dog was home alone. So she contacted police. Around 9.30 p.m., her debit card was used at an ATM with the correct PIN number. Bank surveillance shows a tall, thin man wearing a long sleeve shirt with blue and white pattern, glasses, and some kind of face covering. Monday morning, Cheryl didn't show up for her job at the State University. Around 9.30 p.m. that night, her debit card was used at an ATM. Then again, for the last time at 7 a.m. the next morning. A total of $700 had been withdrawn. Gary killed her, decapitated her, and removed her hands, which he tried to incinerate at his campsite. He left her body in the Apicola National Forest. On December 7th, it had been two years since Rosanna Milani was last seen. After reading about the anniversary, a store clerk in Swain County recalled seeing her the day she disappeared. The Asheville Citizens Times reported that she called a private investigator, Steve Sitsk, who was handling her case, and told him she had come into the store that day with a white man about 60 years old. They bought a backpack, and Rosanna seemed nervous. The following Saturday, it had been a week since Cheryl had disappeared. Around 180 people turned out to search the wooded area off the highway where her car was found. Meanwhile, a state forestry agent spotted Gary's second white Chevy Astro van and made a note of the license plate number. Court records revealed that numerous witnesses contacted authorities to say they had seen Gary and his white van in the area around where Cheryl disappeared. In fact, on the day her white Camry was left on the side of the Crawfordville Highway with a flat tire, a witness testified they saw Gary 
rummaging through the car. Another week went by. It was 11 a.m. on December 15th, and a hunter in Apalachicola National Forest stumbled across a decomposing body. Laying near a forest road covered in brush and tree limbs was a body of a woman. The head and hands had been removed. Law enforcement analyzed DNA and four days later confirmed it to be Cheryl and called in the FBI to assist with the homicide case. In North Georgia, Meredith Emerson loved the rugged mountains. At 24, she was a graduate of the University of Georgia and worked as a sales manager. She was in great physical shape, practiced martial arts, and had a green belt. Although strong, Meredith was only 5'4 and 120 pounds. She loved to walk, run, and hike in the outdoors. On New Year's Day, 2008, she planned to hike the Freeman Trail on Blood Mountain. Snow would fall and she dressed warm, including her fleece jacket. She left a quick note for a roommate, and at 11 a.m., she and her faithful black lab mixed Ella headed off. After parking her car, her and Ella started their hike. Gary Hilton was hiking that same trail with his dog Dandy and ran into Meredith. The two struck up a conversation and he hiked with her for a short while, but his age and frail body couldn't keep up with hers. He decided to stop and take a break and wait for her to descend the trail, and when she did, he pounced. NBC News reported that he targeted Meredith because she was a woman. He threatened her with a knife and demanded her ATM card, but what he didn't expect was that she was a fighter. She grabbed his knife and baton. She was yelling and fighting him. He had to silence her and get her under control, quickly. So he punched her in the face, blackened both her eyes. He hit her so hard he broke his hand. Then he calmed her down by telling her he only wanted her ATM card and PIN number. He then led her down the mountain and placed her and Ella in his van. Gary tried to use Meredith's ATM card to withdraw money, but she gave him the wrong PIN number. She was trying to stay alive until help could rescue her. A former cop hiking the trail that day saw signs of a struggle on the ground. He found two water bottles, dog treats, a leash, and Gary's baton. He reported it to the police. That Tuesday night, almost an inch and a half of snow had fallen on Blood Mountain. And Wednesday morning, 50 law enforcement officers were searching for Meredith. Her parents flew in to join in the search. Meanwhile, Gary tried another PIN number that Meredith had given him, and again, the number was wrong. That night, a park employee found Meredith's car still parked near the Freeman Trail where she'd left it. Hikers who were on the mountain Monday contacted authorities and told them they saw Meredith talking to an aging backpacker. He was described as 5'10", around 160 pounds, with gray or silver hair, and was wearing a yellow jacket. A yellow jacket, similar to the one John Bryant was wearing when he went missing almost three months earlier. Police had his description all over the media. His old boss, John Tabor, recognized who they were talking about and called the sheriff's office to let them know it was Gary Hilton. He was now wanted for questioning. On Thursday, Gary was still holding Meredith captive in the back of his van. For a third time, she gave him a PIN number. And again, it didn't work. He stopped at a restaurant in Marble Hill. A waitress noticed that he seemed agitated. A few hours after he left, police showed up at the restaurant with photos of Gary, asking if he'd been there. They just missed him. 
Later, John Tabor received a call from Gary asking him for money. John didn't see Gary, but rather he left a check for him to pick up at the office. But John waited two hours before reporting this to the police. They just missed him again. Meanwhile, a search party of a hundred volunteers braved the cold winds and snow. As dusk approached, law enforcement pulled the volunteers off the mountain so they could bring in dogs and a helicopter with heat-sensing equipment. On Friday, Meredith Bank finally notified police about the three failed withdrawal attempts on her account. A photo by Pat Mitchell shows Meredith and her dog Ella sitting side by side on the shore. Their backs are to the camera as they face the stillness of the water. Ella's black coat shining from the dapple of sunlight, Meredith's feet outstretched on the earth in front of her. I wonder what amazing piece of nature caught their eye that day that caused them to stop and take a pause. The search spread out now included a 400 square mile area of rugged mountainous terrain. Law officials planned on continuing their search through the cold, snowy weekend using the dogs and a helicopter. Gary knew police were on to him. He told Meredith that she was going home that day. He secured her to her tree, walked back to his van, then returned with a handle from a carjack, walked behind her, and struck her repeatedly over the head. Around 3 p.m., someone spotted a black lab mix hanging out at a grocery store in the Cummings area. It's Chip confirmed it was Ella. Now remember that outstanding bench warrant issued for Gary in 2005 for abandoning his van in a national park? Well, a judge used that to sign an arrest warrant for Gary. A few hours later, and just across from where Ella had been found, Gary was spotted. Three people called 911 to report him at a Chevron gas station. The Atlanta Constitution reported that around 8 p.m., one caller stayed on the line for 12 minutes with the dispatcher, reporting what he was seeing. Gary threw several backpacks, a sleeping bag, and a purse into a trash bin. He told the dispatcher, It's definitely him. The van is there. The dog is there. I saw his face. He said Gary emptied bags onto the ground and was taking them in loads to a dumpster. As he carried them, he held them at arm's length. The caller was getting worried that police hadn't arrived and told the dispatcher that you guys gotta hurry. Soon, he spotted two police cruisers and got excited. Here come the cops! Yes! Yes! Oh, they got him now! In the dumpster, officers found three key pieces of evidence. A portion of a seatbelt with blood transfer stains. They noticed the rear seatbelt in Gary's van had been cut out. Meredith's black leather wallet with her driver's license and university student identification and three flea shirts, soaked in wet blood. Inside the van, police found clothing, sleeping bags, camping equipment, and two days of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with front-page stories of the search for Meredith. Police now believed she was no longer alive. Gary was charged with kidnapping with bodily injury. Police questioned Gary. The district attorney revealed that authorities agreed to not seek the death penalty if Gary would lead them to Meredith's body. Later that night, authorities broke the news to her family. Their search had changed to a recovery mission. Gary drew a map to where he'd left her body. He told investigators she was under leaves and brush, but that she wasn't buried. Later that night, around 7.30 p.m., she was located in Dawson Forest. She had been decapitated.
He also told them where they could find the bayonet he'd used to puncture Cheryl's tire. He left it on the hiking trail on Blood Mountain. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, also known as the GBI, believed there was a definite connection between Meredith's death and Irene Bryant and her missing husband, John. Tips had started to come in about a white van and a man who looked like Gary in the Pisgah National Forest around the time of their disappearance, and they planned to talk with Florida investigators to see if the masked suspect who used Cheryl Dunlop's bank card after her disappearance could be Gary as well. Three murders, one missing person, spread across three states, all in forested areas. It was too coincidental not to be linked. Authorities received thousands of tips from the public. The federal government had now taken the lead, while local and state agencies had continued their investigations. Court records revealed that on January 15th, investigators found what they believed to be Cheryl's charred fragments of her head and hands in a fire pit at a campsite approximately seven miles from where her body had been found. Cigarette butts found at the campsite contained Gary's DNA, and traces of Cheryl's blood were found on several items seized from Gary's van. While some of the media were starting to label Gary Hilton as a serial killer, investigators hadn't yet publicly said that word. Retired FBI profiler Clint Van Zandt said, Is there a chance he's a serial killer? I think there's a strong possibility he is. The question is, how long has he been doing this, and how many homicides is he responsible for? On February 1st, Gary was charged with Meredith's murder. The next day, a hunter in North Carolina's Nantahala National Forest spotted remains of John Bryant. Finally, the family could reunite their parents and honor their wishes to be cremated and have their ashes spread in the wilderness they cherished. Criminologist Stephen Eggers says although Gary told him he killed Meredith for money, that was a secondary issue. This was about power. When you consider his comfort in the woods, that is where he felt most powerful, and that's why he killed them where he did. Another criminologist, Eric Hickey, said he feels like the world is against him. Killing becomes his focus. Joe Davis, a profiler and forensic psychologist, said narcissism is not uncommon for such antisocial personality disorders. He likes the attention he's getting. Referring to where Cheryl, Irene, and John's bodies had been found, he said, I suspect he wanted them to be found. He wants to be heard. He wants to frighten people. He wants to show his power. After he was caught, Gary told his lawyer that he had planned to continue killing. In June 2008, while he was being transferred from Georgia to Florida, he voluntarily talked during the five-hour drive. And in reference to speculation as to when he started killing, he told officers, Nothing before September, okay? I just got old and sick and couldn't make a living and just lost my mind for a while. I couldn't get a grip on it. The September he's likely referring to is 2007, when Irene and John were murdered. Although police believe he was responsible for the death of Rosanna Milani in North Carolina, he was never charged. Gary pled guilty to murdering Meredith Emerson in Georgia and was sentenced to life in prison and is not eligible for parole until 2038, but he will never get out. 
He was sent to trial in Florida for the murder of Cheryl Dunlap. In April 2001, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. Twelve years later, in April 2013, he pled guilty to the kidnapping and murders of John and Irene Bryant in North Carolina and received four life sentences. As of this writing, Gary Hilton is sitting in a dark, cramped 6 by 9 foot cell in Florida, wearing an orange t-shirt reserved for death row inmates. So far, the oldest inmate executed in Florida was 72. Gary is now 73. Just as it looked like his time was running out, his lawyer, on September 9, 2020, asked the Florida Supreme Court to overturn his death sentence. GBI Director Vernon Keenan said, In all my career, I've met very few people that I knew to be evil, and Hilton was one of them. When you have an encounter with an evil person, they have an aura about them, and Hilton was one of the evil people. When you talked to him, when you were in his presence, you could feel this was an evil person. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Newlyweds Miranda and Elliot Barber. Most young married couples dream of a home and a family, but not Miranda and Elliot. Their dream was to murder someone, anyone, and to do it together. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or MurderIn20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.